0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 320, Athelred, Our Wooden Wall. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. This week, Z and I broke down the context of the Battle of Malden. Not just the events, but also how this poem was essentially the Avengers for the Anglo-Saxons. We get into honor culture, treason, in the politics of nostalgia. We also talk about how Burtnauth was like a medieval John Wick. And if that sounds like your kind of thing, you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com for less than a movie ticket per month. And Larry, Proteus, and Ellie have already assembled. Have you? The Battle of Malden was a catastrophe. And the brave last stand of Elderman Bertonoth was never going to change that fact. He was the leading man of Essex, and the second most powerful Elderman in England. And now he was dead, and his third was defeated. To top it off, there are indications that facing the strength of the Viking fleet, and likely in response to the failures of English leadership, some of the English nobility were looking to switch sides. We know at least one noble attempted to defect, Athelrich of Bocking, but we can't be certain that he was alone. There may have been many nobles like Athelrich who just went unrecorded. Things in England were bad. Following Malden, the life of St. Oswald tells us, quote, the Danes were too severely wounded. They were scarcely able to man their ships, end quote. But that detail doesn't come from an eyewitness, and the English response to Malden wasn't the sort of thing you'd expect from a nation that was facing off with a largely depleted force. The king, the nobility of Hampshire, and the nobility of Western Wessex had agreed, following Malden, to pay a guffol, a tribute, and they paid it to the Viking army to make them go away. And why would you have to pay off a depleted army, especially if you have an entire nation's worth of resources at your command? Because even with the defeat of Malden, that was only one shire's furred. There should have been plenty of other shires that could have been raised at this point. So why pay the tribute? Well, you pay it because the army that they were facing off with wasn't depleted at all. It seems quite clear that there is still a massive force of Northmen based at Northey Island and nor the island was within striking distance of London. And so the English paid 10,000 pounds of silver, a tremendous amount of wealth, and wealth that was almost certainly extracted from the peasant population. A peasant population who we know was already facing down a multi-year famine thanks to the Murren, and a peasant population who were already required to do rotations in the Ferd, and who were being thrown at invading armies of professional warriors. The scribes focus on Bertnoff, and they speak in heartbroken tones about the thanes and assorted nobles who died in battle. But they weren't the people who were carrying the brunt of the suffering during this period. It was the people who didn't have any say in what was happening. It was the peasants who were truly carrying this burden. Now, as we mentioned last episode, this payment of 10,000 pounds of silver was made at the urging of Archbishop Siguric the Sirius of Canterbury. And though it certainly caused a great amount of misery to those who had to pay it, tactically, this payment actually wasn't all that terrible of an idea. In fact, Alfred the Great had done something very similar during his reign. These payments, these Danegelds, were about buying time. It was clear that the English weren't ready to fight off the Danes, at least not right now, but that didn't mean that they couldn't be ready to fight them later. They just needed time, and this payment might give them that time. And that right there is one of the things that makes Rudyard Kipling's famous poem so unfair. The oft-repeated section, once you have paid in the Geld, you never get rid of the Dane, tends to imply that the idea here was to get rid of the Vikings with a gufful with the danegeld But that is highly unlikely. What this was, was a delaying tactic so they could prepare their defenses. And so the 10,000 pounds of silver was paid. And the Viking army boarded their ships and left England. For now. And for his part, it does appear that King Athelred took this situation seriously. The real estate bonanza that the king, the aldermen of Hampshire, and their friends and family had been engaging in since 984 suddenly came to a halt. That rapid series of charters redistributing land seized from powerful dynasties and religious institutions, and then giving them to the king's friends, just stops. And it wasn't for a lack of opportunity. On February 28th of 992, Archbishop Oswald died. And he was soon joined by his friend and ally, Elderman Athelwina of East Anglia. The old guard were all dying out. And in previous years, this would have presented the king with an opportunity to advance the interests of his inner circle. But here, with the death of these major figures of England, we're not seeing the sort of shameless profiteering that we did when, for example, Archbishop Athelwald died. Instead, King Athelred appears to have been focused on something else. His navy. If England was going to be safe from the Viking threat, it wasn't enough to just have burrs. The population of England was too big, and the burrs really only protected whatever was inside them. They couldn't protect the villages and the hamlets from quick Viking strikes. And assuming the Vikings continued to come in large numbers, they couldn't even reasonably protect the people within the walls of the burr, as the people of Watchet and Ipswich had recently discovered. Furthermore, if the Danes were not challenged at sea, then whenever they were challenged on land by a sizable English army, then they might just board their ships and sail to a new target and loot that place before the English army could reach them. Land-based defenses alone simply were not enough. If England was going to be safe, she needed her wooden wall. She needed a fleet of ships that would stop the Vikings before they could ever set foot on English soil. But ships don't appear out of nowhere. They need to be constructed. And whatever ships the English forces had would also need to be maintained. Furthermore, technology changes. And just because a ship design worked during the time of Alfred doesn't mean that it'll necessarily work in the late 10th century. Though, to be honest, if you remember, English ships didn't exactly have a reputation for working all that well anyway. You might remember that fleet of ships that were constructed and were absolutely massive, and then they got immediately stuck in the shallows. Yeah, England hadn't yet earned its reputation as a seafaring nation, and the ships that they were making were, well, bless them, they were doing their best. So that right there was a bit of a problem. But the real difficulty, strangely, was the fact that England had been at peace for decades. At least it was at peace regarding major external enemies. In fact, Athelred's father even got a nickname because of how long they'd been at peace. And in those intervening years, a tremendous amount of work had been put into nation-building. And in response, England had seen a flourishing of intellectual, cultural, and artistic development. But not so much in the area of warfare. Though that isn't to say that military efforts were utterly abandoned. Thanes, eldermen, and other assorted high-ranking secular and ecclesiastical figures were still typically required to provide men, arms, horses, and even ships for the defense of the kingdom. They were also required to build and maintain roads and fortifications and bridges. That stuff was basically in the job description. So even though England was at peace, the English system was still designed to provide for the defense of the kingdom. But there was a small problem. That system was built on norms. And norms only work so far as the ruling class respects them. But things had changed. Recently, self-interested and greedy nobles were placed in positions of power, not due to their abilities, nor to their temperament, but merely due to their proximity to the king, and, at least in a few cases, due to their ability to satisfy the king's desire for money. And fair play to the king and his council, they did make quite a lot of money by doing this. Though, much of that money was now sailing back to Scandinavia on Olaf's ships. And while the king and his council have been cashing in, in the meantime, the defenses have been left in tatters. Because here's the thing about putting greedy, self-interested people in positions of power. They tend to do greedy, self-interested things. So, as Elfridge of Hampshire and his friends and family started taking positions of power in England, how much work do you think they put into adequately maintaining their military obligations? Yeah, not much, right? You're not going to make money off of this. It costs money. And with that in mind, it shouldn't surprise us that the records give the impression that the Navy of England by 992 was a bit of a show. And my guess is that the land-based forces weren't all that much better. Again, it costs money to outfit a Ferd with weapons and armor. It costs money to build and maintain burrs and bridges. It costs money to construct and maintain ships. And that was money that could be spent instead on getting that nice tapestry that Elfridge saw at market the other day. And sure enough, later accounts directly blame the return of the Scandinavian raiders on the poor status of the English fleet during this period. And that is probably partially true. While it is certainly true that there were also plenty of political reasons for the rise in raiding activity, and those originated far from the English shores, most notably the political situation in Denmark and Norway, which meant that there were suddenly powerful Scandinavian nobles who were competing with each other for dominance. And raiding was a major way to establish that dominance. And obviously, all of that was well out of Athelred and his council's control. But the fact that the English defenses were weakened due to the declining quality of both its fleet and its land-based forces couldn't have helped all that much. And personally, I think that explains why you have those first few small-scale raids. They were basically like a pack of velociraptors testing the fence. And once they realized the power was off, it was go time. And suddenly, you have a huge fleet at Watch It, and then a massive fleet at Northey Island. What I'm getting at here is I think that England getting itself into this much trouble took a team effort. But, here they were, and now the English ruling class was forced to confront a reality where they had to do something I mean, that Dangeld wasn't likely to keep the Viking fleet at bay for very long. And even if it did, it's not like it was the only pirate fleet out there. They had to have a defensive strategy to deal with this. So we're told that, quote, all the ships that were of any use, end quote, were cobbled together into a fleet. And to me, this sounds a lot like the little ships of Dunkirk. And I can't help but imagine a bunch of well-meaning sailors on fishing boats and a few clapped-out war vessels just trying to make the best of a bad situation. But we're told that the plan here was to use this fleet, such as it was, to protect the English shores. And since the fleet was drawn from all over the kingdom, it's probably fitting that the nobles put in charge of it were also from the various corners of England. Elderman Thorad of Northumbria, who might have been Athelred's father-in-law, commanded one portion. Bishop Elstan of London commanded another one. Bishop Asquig of Dorchester commanded another. And of course, they were led by the king's most trusted confidant, the highest-ranking noble in the kingdom outside of King Athelred himself, the head of the inner council, Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire. And with this august body of leadership in place, the fleet was sent out with the express direction, quote, to try, if they could, to entrap the Danish army anywhere at sea, end quote. This English fleet would beat the Danes at their own game and make England, once again, a place of fear for the pirates. And if Athelred had read the sagas, I'm sure he would have had peasants collecting adders and putting them into a big pit at this point, because it was payback time. Now, all they had to do was wait. And eventually, word came that a fleet of Vikings were sighted. And the scrappy English fleet made their preparations to intercept and engage. But everything during this era took a long time. Everything. It took forever to get a scarf. It took forever to get your neighbor to stop helping the Vikings. And it turns out, it took forever to find and engage a fleet of Vikings at sea. So eventually, the sun set. And they were close to the Vikings, but they weren't there yet. The battle would have to wait until morning. But that being said, that's not exactly the end of the world. You want your fighters fresh and ready, not exhausted from a long day at sea. And if they could catch the Danes in the morning, while they were still moored and unprepared, they might be able to do a lot of damage to the fleet before they could ready their ships and fight back. So Elfrich and his captains made the decision to hold off battle until tomorrow, and let the English sailors get some rest. But not everyone was asleep. Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire was wide awake. Because what the hell was he doing here? He wasn't a sailor. Elfrich was here for the parties, and for the food, and the drink, and of course, for the money. And for over half a decade, things had been going pretty great for him in that regard. He was given the Eldermency of Hampshire. His son was made a reeve. His brother was given an abbey. And not only that, but the king was turning to him as his most trusted counselor. Things had been going great all the way until these f***ing Vikings showed up. They had managed to take all the fun out of being the king's right-hand man. And so now, rather than being at a party, he's stuck on this rinky-dink little ship at the head of a fleet of even worse ships And he's been ordered to fight off a fleet of Vikings in their high-tech dracars. This was not what Elfrich had signed up for. I mean, sure, he did have the title of Elderman, but let's be honest, he wasn't really an Elderman, at least not the kind of Elderman that the king wanted him to be. King Athelred wanted someone like Bertnoff, but that wasn't Elfrich. And even if it was, Bertnoth had died fighting the Vikings. And what was the point of getting all these lands and all this money if he was just going to die on a leaky boat in the channel? Elfrich was here for the cash. And honor culture aside, this was a bad bet. And besides, you can't eat honor culture. So he hatched a plan. He would warn the Danes that they were coming. Presumably, the thought was that if they were warned, they might scamper off before the English fleet could reach them. Thereby, Elfrich could claim victory without having to, you know actually have to fight for that victory. He just chased them off. Alternatively, maybe he looked at the ships that were mustered and surmised that this was going to be a slaughter and that England would quickly fall to the Danes. So maybe if he warned them, he could make friends with the new ruling class that was no doubt coming. Both are reasonable possibilities. I'm not sure precisely what his motivation for treason was, but whatever it was, he somehow managed to send a messenger out away from the fleet and have him go and, quote, warn the enemy, end quote. And I presume that the messenger did as he was told. But the problem here was that these were Vikings, sea wolves. Even if they were properly warned and got away, that was no guarantee that a battle wouldn't follow soon thereafter. I mean, to be honest, I doubt they were afraid of facing the English fleet, such as it was. And why should they be? The high seas were their turf. So with that potential risk in mind, how do you think Elfridge responded? Everything about this man, from his very first appearance in the record, has told the story of someone who was motivated by a profound sense of self-interest. So do you think he was going to stick around and if the Vikings did arrive, he'd go and raise the flags and proclaim that England expects every man will do his duty? Come on, this is Elfridge of Hampshire. And I would say that he mutinied, but there wasn't a captain for him to overthrow. He was the captain. And he had a large number of ships that answered to him. So as the rest of the fleet slept and prepared for the coming battle, Elderman, Elfridge, and his men used the cover of darkness to prepare their ships. They readied their oars, raised their anchors, and set course away from the remainder of the English naval fleet and to safety. They were deserters now but they would live. In the morning, Elderman Thorad of Northumbria and Bishops Elfstan and Esquig discovered that the king's chosen man had abandoned them. And even worse, he had taken a massive portion of the fleet with him. But they still had a job to do. The king had charged them with this duty, and they would follow through, regardless of what Elfrich had done. And so they rushed to the place where the Danes were spotted mooring. And when they got there, they discovered that almost all of the Viking ships had already escaped. There was only one left. Someone had warned them that they were coming. And given the fact that Elfrich had abandoned them, I'm pretty sure that everyone knew who that someone was. As for that single ship that remained in the bay, I'm not sure why they had failed to escape with the rest of the Viking fleet, but they were quickly apprehended and killed to a man. The remainder of the Viking fleet, however was free to move on the open seas. And the chronicle tells us that it intercepted the ships that came from East Anglia and London, which I presume was a sizable portion of the English fleet that remained after Elfrich's treason. And quote, there a great slaughter was made, and they took the ship in which was the elderman, all armed and rigged. End quote. Now unfortunately the scribes don't mention which Elderman's ship was captured here, but I'm fairly certain those Elderman Thored of Northumbria. I mean, he was the elderman who refused to stand down, even after Elfrich led a mass desertion. More importantly, Elderman Thorad of Northumbria disappears from the record on that same year. He never appears again, and in the following year, we have a new Elderman of Northumbria. So I'm inclined to think that in this battle, somewhere off the coast of England, following the betrayal of the king's right-hand man, Elderman Thorad of Northumbria met his end. And with that, for the second year in a row, England was faced with a tremendous loss at the hands of the Scandinavians. And King Athelred had nothing but a treasonous noble to show for it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on a bunch of social media, and you can find links to all of them in the community section of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening. But I bet you didn't think that they would come crashing down. No have to say